Alright, welcome back pool fans and happy holidays to everybody from American Billiard Radio. From us to you, please have a happy and safe holiday. Get together with your friends, your family, or all of the above. Tell somebody you love them, do something nice for somebody, and uh, you know, make the most of the season. It's that time of year. So, uh, what's going on in the big bad pool world? Well, congratulations goes out to Shane Van Boning. He just took the title at the AccuStats Make It Happen 10 Ball, uh, 10 ball Invitational. Uh, he won that over Jason Shaw in the finals there. So, congratulations to both of them uh, and Shane for taking that. Um, also, we have an announcement from uh, two different entities, the WPBA and uh, Matchroom Sport. Uh, WPBA says that uh, they've signed a contract with the uh, Soren Eagle Casino up in uh, Mount Pleasant, Michigan for the next two years to be hosting their uh, Masters Tournament. So congratulations to them. Uh, that's coming up uh, in February, actually not too long from now. So keep your eyes peeled for that. And uh, the Moscone Cup, uh, two first two ranking events for the year have been announced. And that's going to be, of course, Turning Stone 25 at the Turning, Turning Stone Casino in Verona, New York. And we kind of expected that to happen. And the other one is uh, the Derby City. Uh, so we expected that. It's just good that we got official word for that already. So the players know that if they want to get in on those points, they need to get in on the action, as it were. So, And speaking of, you know, Derby, Derby City and Turning Stone are both coming up here pretty quick. And so you're going to want to keep your eyes and ears peeled. If you're not attending, watch for the streaming information and all that kind of good stuff. So, all right. So with that, I've already wished you a happy holiday and, of course, hopefully a safe New Year's and New Year's Eve, that kind of stuff. Be safe, please. It's not worth it. So what we're going to go ahead and do is jump right into this uh, second chapter of a book we've been covering. In case you didn't catch this last week, we are reading the book by uh, Andrew Ponzi, as he was known on the street, um, or in his pool world, I suppose. Um, He has an autobiography that was published in 1948 called The Fabulous Mr. Ponzi, and we're going to read a chapter of it every week. The first chapter was last week. If you didn't catch it, go ahead and go back on the archive and listen to it. You can catch up with where we are today. So we'll be starting with chapter two and uh, are continuing with chapter two. And then, of course, next week we'll get on to chapter three. So if you're ready to go to sleep, here we go. Oh, by the way, just for you guys, if I didn't mention this before, this copy is absolutely chock full of typos. So if I make a mistake somewhere along the way, you'll have to forgive me. It's uh, There's lots of mistakes in here. so And there's things that they are spelled funny. So not my fault. I'm going to do my best to read it for you as plain as day. All right. Chapter 2. It was early fall in 1925. With the passing years, I had won Mr. Romeo's house tournament. Besides many other local tournaments, produced at the larger downtown rooms. One of the largest recreation centers was the Hudson on Broad Street. It boasted 90 bowling alleys and 80 pocket billiard tables. I played there frequently. 
If some aspiring pocket player disputed my right to be called the best player in the establishment, I would accept his challenge to play for money, marbles, or Q-chalk. Big sums of money hinged on the outcome of these games as my friends and backers felt that I was invincible and were prepared to back me to the limit. Many times it was a case of win or go hungry, and I can assure you I missed many meals, but as a general rule, I more than held my own with the best of them. I was improving all the time and was making frequent runs of 90 and 100 on a 5 by 10 table. Some of the sharpshooters, with visions of financial cleanup in mind, brought professional players from other cities to play against me. On one occasion, they brought an opponent, then unknown to Philadelphians, but who, it was later learned, had played in a national tournament. He was to meet me in a series of matches. Those in the know wagered big sums, big sums against me, but I was in rare form and won game after game and purse after purse. If you recall, it was about this time that Charles Ponzi, Boston financial wizard, was accused of mulching the public out of thousands of dollars when his 100%, when his 100% scheme collapsed. So, when one spectator turned to another and asked, Who is this kid that's winning all the money? The other answered, I don't know his name, but from the way he keeps beating these guys out of their money, I think he's another Ponzi. Some of the reporters got a hold of the story and it ran in the local newspapers. From that time on, everybody started calling me Ponzi. So I adopted it as my nom de billiards. Soon afterwards, I annexed the Pennsylvania State Championship and was in much demand by local billiard room operators to put on exhibitions. These usually netted me from 10 to $25, depending on the size and prosperity of the establishment. I practiced long hours at the table and went to see every player of note who came to Philadelphia, hoping that someday I would have the opportunity to pit my skill against such great cueists as Greenleaf, Taberski, and Rudolph. These players invariably would stage their exhibitions in Saul Allinger's located at 13th and Market Street or in Joe Mayer's Art Street Academy. They usually employed a combination booking manager and press agent who would herald their appearance by placing half-sheet lithographed posters around the billiard hall besides sending numerous press releases to local sports editors. The posters would show the player poised to the table and the reading matter would give his title, high runs, and mention of some of the better-known better players whom he had defeated. It was at one of these exhibitions that the fans and sports writers began to take me in earnest and concede that I was possibly of titular caliber. Frank Tabersky, who held the title at the time, was billed to appear at the Mayor Academy in a match against Andrew St. Jean of New York City. About half an hour before the game was scheduled to start, Mr. Mayer received a telegram from St. Jean reporting that he was indisposed and could not, come to, could not come to keep his engagement until the following day. Not wishing to disappoint the crowd, 
Mr. Mayor looked about for a suitable substitute to play the champion. As was my habit, I had come over in the capacity of a spectator. But immediately, some of my friends entreated Mr. Mayor to permit me to sub for Mr. Jean, for St. Jean. At first, Mr. Mayor was very reluctant, as he felt I would be no match for the champion. But after much hesitation and many apologies to the audience, he consented to permit me to play the afternoon block only. As I went about the task of selecting a, a good cue of the proper weight and balance, I could not help but think that this was the break I had longed and prayed for. During many such exhibitions, I had seen promising young cubists freeze up and play a game unworthy of their skill because they were up against a big-name player. But Tabersky's reputation did not disturb me in the least. Neither did the knowledge that he had frequently run a hundred ivories from the break serve to give me an attack of stage fright. Rather, I was elated at the opportunity to play against him. I felt confident that I would give a good account of myself. The, the many games for big stakes as well as for coffee and cake money in which I had taken part <coughs> excuse me, had prepared and steeled me for just such an event. So when Mr. Tversky and I stepped to the table for the lag, my nerves were as calm and unruffled as though this were just another practice session. He won the break, and the champ played the usual safety. In doing so, he left me a shot that provided a good opportunity to break up the ivories that were still clustered in the triangle. Slowly and methodically, I pocketed ball after ball. As rack after rack was cleared from the table, I was oblivious to my surroundings, or to the referee's count as he called each shot. When I finally missed and acknowledged the applause from the gallery, only then I heard the referee as he announced, 61 for Mr. Ponzi! Ed Sullivan, New York Daily News columnist, had dubbed Tabersky the human iceberg because of his cool and deliberate style of play. But when the latter got up to take his place at the table, he had melted down to the size of an ice cube. He was furious to think that this unknown kid had the audacity to humiliate him before a large audience that had paid to see the champion in action. And he, the great Tabersky, had spent most of his afternoon just sitting in the chair. There was no doubt that he was upset, because shortly afterward, he got out of position and played me safe. The next few innings were marked by safety play as we sparred for an opening. Now and then we would, we would get a few markers to our string, but neither of us found an opening for an extended run. Frank tried his best to outmaneuver me, but I refused to be trapped. He was slow and deliberate in calling his every play. What with buttoning and unbuttoning his coat, chalking and rechalking his cue, dusting talc on his hands, siding and reciting possible shots, it was enough to put any opponent on a nervous edge. These were the same tactics he had employed against Ralph Greenleaf and which had so upset the nervous Ralph that he had lost his title to, Ber to Tabersky in the 1926 National League Tournament. 
I was not disturbed in the least by the long waits between my turns at the table. I sat there calmly biding my time, and when the opportunity presented itself, I was quick to seize the advantage and run out my string. I won by a score of 100 to 63. Well-wishers crowded about me, shook my hand, and complimented me on the victory. Mr. Mayor came to me and said, Andrew, the champion feels he was way off form this afternoon. Will you play him again tonight? I was only too happy to oblige, as I was confident it would be a repeat performance on my part. News of my victory soon spread to all the billiard rooms in town. That night, some of my old neighborhood buddies, accompanied by Nick, Felix, and Mr. Romeo, came downtown to see the match. It was a case of history repeating itself. I outshot and outmaneuvered Tversky at every turn, and he bowed to me once again by a score of 100 to 59. Sports writers Jim Kiernan of the Philadelphia Inquirer and Lance McCurley of the Philadelphia Daily News had their photographers pose me in every conceivable position while they took notes of my background and career. Brother Nick and Felix, proud as peacocks and tremendously excited, looked on as the bulbs flashed. By their side, beaming and nodding happily, was my old friend Mr. Romeo. I believe he was happiest of all. As for myself, my face must have been a study in wish fulfillment. I had beaten the world champion twice in the same day. That night I never slept as I awaited the early editions of the morning newspapers. It was the thrill of a lifetime to see my pictures spread all over the sports pages and to read, quote, the local boy makes good stories. Jim Kieran of the Inquirer observed, Ponzi was the hero of the contest yesterday. The local player was in good stroke and took advantage of every opening and, as a result, delighted his supporters by a double, double triumph, which demonstrates he is gradually improving. Sparkling execution, ideal break shots, splendid position, and all-around excellence marked his every play. Lance McCurley was equally complimentary in his daily news column. Not a newcomer, this Ponzi, but a star even now reaching his maturity of skill, losing the last of the nervousness, the over-eagerness that stamped his play so markedly and held him back so obviously many years, reaching the ripeness of judgment that is the hallmark of the established player, and with many more years and much progress still promised by the steady rate of his improvement. And that concludes Chapter 2 of the fabulous Mr. Ponzi. Merry Christmas. Happy New Year. Happy Hanukkah. Happy Kwanzaa. Everybody be safe. And we'll see you again next year. Music